welcome to Chef It. I'm Lisa, I'm a chef, I live and work in Los Angeles, and I cook for the rich and famous. And I podcast for my car. So I'm on my way to work, I'm on the 101 South, um, some traffic because it's Labor Day, and I'm also cooking for, I have a couple things going on today, I'm cooking for my family, which is a big family, <laughs> it's been a really busy weekend. Um, it's interesting because Saturday they had a party and then more people came than was expected. And then I think that those people didn't leave. And then yesterday when I showed up to cook for the typical crowd, there was just nobody left. So it was a very, very busy weekend. And mind you, I'm like the only staff in this property. So it's just me. It's just me and banking on a lot of kindness, help, generosity, and, and help from this, this super rad family. They're actually really amazing and everybody's super helpful. When, you know, if I ask for help, they're going to be there. Um, so I'm pretty tired, but I really like them and everything's great. Unfortunately, um, they have a, a COVID situation, some, some friends of a family of somebody or something or other. And I am also making them dinner tonight as a drop off. Um, so I'm, I got a busy day ahead of me. And as I was driving in, I was just thinking about, I was just thinking about the nineties. I don't, again, I don't know why driving lately, maybe it's a song. I heard that song by midnight oil, which is actually from the eighties, but uh, that song beds are burning or whatever the hell that song is. And I, maybe it's just the bad midnight oil, just burning the midnight oil. I feel like I'm always burning midnight oil. And I think that that really is, could be the theme song of, of all the workhorses of the industry, of the culinary industry. Um, that includes anyone in a restaurant or doing the kind of work that I'm doing, which is cooking privately, catering, whatever. There's a lot of stuff going on today. I mean, just as I'm sitting in traffic, I'm looking at all the catering trucks and it is interesting when you think about then and now and, and just how different food is. Um, with technology, food has become different every day. You know, um, back in the 90s, nobody knew anything about food. Nobody knew anything outside of Better Homes and Gardens maybe Gourmet Magazine if you were sophisticated enough to read that and the Wednesday New York Times and maybe like your local newspaper had some sort of food section with a few recipes but dining was not anywhere near what it is today and more importantly there was no way to really talk about food until the Food Network started and that was really minimal it was like Sarah Moulton you know, two hot tamales. Love those gals. They're awesome. Um, you know, young Bobby Flay on Master Chefs with Julia, and you know, the young Emerald was on there. Jacques Papin's amazing show. Jeff Smith, the Frugal Gourmet, fantastic show. Too bad he's a pervert. Um, <laughs> seriously. Um, you know, the Galloping Gourmet. What a fantastic show that was. What an amazing program that was. Um, there was Paul Prudhomme episodes, of course, the, the ever 
amazing Martha Stewart, the queen of it all. And, I mean, just, and Julia, of course, more Julia, all kinds of the old Julia, the new Julia, the Master Chefs, Julia, the whole nine yards. So, there wasn't really, like, any other space to kind of know food unless you were, like, you know, working at Alice Waters Restaurant or working in some sort of, you know, Eurocentric French cuisine suited restaurant for special occasions. Um, there wasn't, you know, they didn't have elevated Mexican food. There certainly wasn't anything elevated about any sort of what they would consider ethnic foods, whether it's Indian food or, you know, Chinese food or Japanese food. I'm sure that there were like these emporiums of amazing cuisine, but it wasn't something that like, if it's not your wheelhouse or your culture or whatever, not wheelhouse, sorry, wrong phrase, but if it's not your um, background, you know, you might go to dim sum in San Francisco. You're in a very diverse place. You're a, a city type of person, you know, but if you're out in the burbs or you're having like a different out in the country or whatever, the chances are, you know, you're just, you're eating your diet, whatever your family's diet is. You know, if you're Jewish, you're eating your food. If you're if you're Catholic and Mexican, you're having tamales at Easter. I mean, so it's just, you know, you're doing your own thing. There wasn't this intersectionality that we have now with food, which is sort of crossover and understanding and language and the whole blah, blah, blah about it. Anyhow. Um, <clears throat> so whatever was emerging was through like Eurocentric lens, meaning French culinary perspective, if you will, which embodies, again, um, the, the skill set goes back to, you know, a lot of just training that is embodied into, you know, that the French language. So all the, so all the cuts, you know, the Lyonnaise cut or the Brunois or whatever it is that you're doing, these are all French terms that American people are learning in the kitchen and that other cultures are also learning in the kitchen. Um, it was a time where you would also be learning. It would be exciting and new to learn about sushi or, you know, Chinese cuisine. And, you know, it was, it was just like everything felt like kind of exciting and interesting. And I'm not saying it's still not like that now. But now it's more like everybody's just immersed in so much crossover that it's really fantastic and exciting. But back then, in the restaurants, you were getting very straightforward. Um, so it's, you know, like for instance, I worked at a bistro, it was a very straightforward bistro fair, which by the way is absolutely fantastic. It's the reason I became a chef. It was my goal was to be that kind of a French bistro chef, you know, a higher elevated version, the, the most elevated sort of versions of that. Um, and, you know, if you were doing American cuisine like Jeremiah Tower, you were doing this really strong practice of like just really beautiful technique paired with American cuisine, you know, in that James Beard sense, meaning you know, James Beard is the, the father of American cooking. So, um, you know, maybe he's making the most perfect buttermilk biscuit with the most beautifully cured salmon. 
you know, the most perfect sort of like vodka locks with, you know, um, some whatever whips, whipped up something, whatever he's whipping up the cream cheese, whatever you're doing, you know, chive emulsion or whatever the craziness is going on. Um, that's kind of, that's the take, you know, you're bringing something more elevated, more chefy to, to the situation. And Alice Waters was purely Mediterranean um, and is now just considered Californian, which is great because that's basically what emerged. But, you know, inside of all that, there, you know, outside of like that, you know, the farm to table, the, the local conversation, which really was in, like that was a new thing. Now, I mean, you walk into Whole Foods and every person in the world is like, oh, farm to table. You know, like there's no one's even thinking about what that means. It really meant something in the 90s. When somebody said, oh, farm to table, you're thinking, wow, this came right from the farm. And the inspiration came from the farm and the farmer. And I have to give complete and total focus and allegiance to the life of this strawberry or this tomato or this squash or, you know, this oyster, um, you know, the salmon, whatever it is, whatever came to you, you're really recognizing, you know, where is your food from? And then you're just paying allegiance to all the things that took place for to get to your, and then you're spelling that out even stronger. I mean, you're like, you know, you, you're writing something down in pencil. This is Sharpie. <laughs> this is like, whoa, okay, here we go, right? This is strong. This is strong. This is what's on the plate. Um, it's just really, it, that's a beautiful thing. But even, it, you know, so as, 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 as meaningful, as, you know, unique as that was in, in I would say, the early 90s, the mid-90s, it was just becoming like an idea, right? A phrase that was that really meant something. Um, there was still just, you know, your classic make a buck and turn and burn at the restaurants, you know, dropping fry baskets of great quality calamari with a beautiful, you know, Kalamata olive aioli <laughs> and, you know, maybe some, you know, weird honey sriracha was not a thing yet but there would be some sort of like chili flake or jalapeno was kind of a thing or of course avocado this is like pre-avocado toast in restaurants for sure because that's that's very that's just in the last like 10 years maybe not even that but you know um sorry losing my train of thought as i'm dodging a dodge a dodge something um this freeway is kind of crazy and loud. I apologize. I'm going to try and speak closer to the phone. Um, yeah, so, you know, if you're dropping the calamari, you're doing, like, the burger with the perfect, you know, frites and, you know, all these sorts of things that are crafted. And people are trying to be, to still make the food be, um, have color on the plate. That was, like, such a big thing, right? Because you eat with your eyes and the whole thing. And the way people get color on the plate is through something called tomato concasse. 
a restaurant, right? And you would get, which you still get in a lot of places, you get this half moon slice of orange or like a little orange wedge or whatever. I, I'll still never understand this. I mean, actually, I do understand it. We'll, we'll talk about it. And you get a little sprig of parsley. And that's supposed to like, you know, lift the plate, essentially. That's the oomph of the plate. That's like, it's like, you know, you're putting on a black dress and then you're putting your pearls on. That's the pearls of the plate. Um, nobody stops to think if anybody cares about that, if it makes any sense. It's a very mindless, bizarre, wasteful, a very unresourceful tradition of the diner plate, which I'm sure has like its own weird space. I mean, I don't know. Like there's someone out there right now putting that, you know, onto a plate at like the proper hotel on their diner breakfast plate or oh, well, there's somebody toying with that shit making trying to be like retro cool or something trying to it's just very trying to be ironic right but irony aside whatever you want to say it's unresourceful and nobody really cares about that um tomato concasse was that <laughs> And it's one of the things that you learn when you go to culinary school is how to blanch a tomato. You do a little cross-section of the Roma. That's how you start because that's the easiest tomato to do this with. And, and if you don't know the Roma tomato, it's a San Marzano sort of tomato. Whoa, this car literally almost hit me. Corolla. Damn. Okay, so Aroma has like the perfect thick skin. It's usually has like a nice balance of, you know just enough sweetness in the tomato but it, it's a great one to make for like a tomato sauce and it has a nice color if it's kept properly meaning it's not put in a fridge which is a complete nightmare because that actually makes it oh now I'm almost hitting somebody that actually makes it really mealy and you know when you see a tomato and you can like see this sort of white fiber that's just a bad tomato in general but putting it inside of an ice box just is really gonna kill it get in a soup at that point. Um, maybe in a salsa. I mean, maybe you can get away with that, but oops. Now, now I'm driving so badly. It's a damn long to say. So you cross, you know, you, um, you're going to scoop out with a paring knife. You're going to core out, you know, that little top of the tomato, other oh, stuff in the road. Like a little quarter inch dice. And then you're gonna like 
kind of lay it, flatten it out without tearing the flesh, without you know smashing it. And you're gonna have a very sharp chef knife, and you're gonna you're gonna do your best. I would say an eight inch or a ten inch is the way to go. And you're gonna do your best job at slicing, like doing a very long slice with a quarter inch width. And you're gonna just, you know, uh, make these nice slices. And wow, it's really hot out here. It's like 100 degrees today. I'm making this, anyways, never mind. And then you're going to, you know, line those babies up like soldiers and then make cube them into little tiny quarter cubes or whatever you want to do. And then you keep that aside with either, you can dress it with a little bit of sugar if it's not too sweet. Ew, I know it sounds horrifying. A little bit of lemon, which adds a little interest. A little bit of salt, a pinch of black pepper. Then that's becoming like a whole other weird little salsa-like situation. But you're not really looking for something like salsa because this is something you sprinkle. But you decorate food with. It makes no sense to the food that you're serving. It could be duck confit. It could be, um, I don't know. I mean, it could be gravlax, right? It could be, we were just talking about that earlier. It could be like, oh, put a little, a little bit of concasse on top of the gravlax for color, right? Or on top of the whatever. And, and, you know, this is just something that you're putting a little bit on top of the fish. And not to say that, I mean, it shouldn't taste bad or wrong, but it's not really purposeful because it doesn't really tie to the dish. Not all dishes, the majority of food in the world does not need a diced tomato on top of it, is my point, right? It doesn't make any sense. Since we're on the topic of tomato concasse, I'm going to share an even more difficult way to prepare the Roma tomato into concasse. And this was like my pride <laughs> culinary school. There are these weird moments when you're in culinary school. You're paying a lot of money to go to school. First you gotta get in, then you gotta figure out how the hell you're gonna pay for all this craziness. And then you're in there with a bunch of people who are like running into each other. And then they're always like the really seasoned people. And then there's like the, you know, the really like sort of intense personalities that are really competitive. You know, I remember I had a girl in there who was like a swimmer and she just had that whole like, you know, intensity, she's real competitive. And, um, you know, and then there was like the people like me, like I'm the person that's like, let's go, woo, let's do this. Like I just get excited and I don't know what the hell I'm doing, but I'm just, you know, I'm a hard worker and I've got a lot of stamina and high energy and I'm just going to like push the team over the edge, right? We're just going to take it out all the way, all the way out to the field, guys. So like that's me you know, in the room of like the tomato concasse people, because when you're cooking in culinary school, at least where I went to school, which is the California Culinary Academy, you're, you're not just like doing concasse for no reason. You're working in an actual restaurant experience. So the whole time you're there, you're rotating around the school's actual restaurants that make money. Because <laughs> this is a, culinary schools are a money machine, money making machine. They're getting our money, getting money from the public and all kinds of other God knows why. So, you know, you're hopping around from the grill, you're going up to, you know, the, um, the dining room. Um, there's just all this, you know, you're doing 
banquet stuff all through the holidays. So everything that we do, it's cooking, it's not for the sake of just teaching us. We're actually doing it for, you know, we're actually working a restaurant. So, you know, when you're working on the concasse, it's got to be good. <laughs> but you do go through, like, a real intensity of, like, everyone's getting, you know, you, you do get graded on these things. So, I learned a way to concasse from... Possibly. Anyways, he always had a little something on his breath. Anyhow, French guys, we had all French chefs. Um, this old timer who used to work on all the cruise lines in France, the Cunard lines where my grandfather used to work. Another story, another time. Um, this dude, uh, Chef Rambeau, was like, oh, well, I can teach you another way without blanching, you know, the uh, Roma tomato. I can teach you this way. I, do you want to? I was like, yeah, okay, show us, show us, show us, show us. So I'm like all excited that he's showing us things. So you like, you basically like top and tail your tomato. Um, very lightly, just like snip off the ends, right, with a really sharp knife. And then you're going to, you know, gut the tomato. And then you're going to kind of just press your hand down flat with the skin side down. So now you have no guts of the tomato. And you've got what looks like um, just like a long leaf, like a petal-shaped, you know, tomato. Wedge, side, half. It's half the tomato. And then you're going to, oh, okay, calm it down. Roadsters or whatever the hell they're, I don't know. Anyhow. Anyhow. Um, sorry, I'm just trying not to die while I'm doing a podcast. So, um, <laughs> you're flattening down this petal-shaped Roma tomato, which has no guts. It's cut in half. And you're going to remove the rib and set that aside neatly if it's worth saving. Hopefully it is. And then you're going to get your knife neatly Actually, no, you're not topping and tailing it. I take this back. You're just cutting it in half. And then you're flattening it out. And you're trying to get your knife just right under. Again, you need an 8-inch chef's knife for this. 8 or 10. You get your knife right under the skin. And you're going to fillet it just like you fillet a fish. And this is great practice for anyone who is getting into any, like, fish butchery. This is probably the best practice that you can have. I became obsessed with this way of concasse, and I was kind of annoying where I'm like, hey, I did it this way, and whatever. And to be honest, you it, sometimes, you know, you can overcook the tomato, and it can make the flesh a little mealy. With this, it's just completely raw tomato, so you, you're starting out with, like, a really nice, solid product, and you can slice it so much better, just in case you overcooked it. So, um... Because if you did overcook it, you're dealing with a more mushy product, and that's just, I mean, that's a no-go. So in this way, you don't have that issue at all. So um, I remember learning it that day, and then I went into Stars that night, because that's where I was working, and there was a sous chef, forgetting her name, she was really cool, she ended up going over to pastry and becoming the pastry chef, because she started baking all the wedding cakes, I don't know why the hell they were doing wedding cakes at Stars, but they were. Um, we were busy, you know, we were doing like 500 covers a night, and we had like huge event spaces and all this stuff going on, so I guess that's why, but, um, 
Joanne. Her name is Joanne. Joanne was a powerhouse. She just came up through like the ranks of a bunch of hotel kitchens and she knew a lot of skills. And she was the only woman, only female on the hot side. And she was a sous chef only for like literally a day that I was there. And then she moved over to pastry, which bummed me out because then I was the only girl in the kitchen. But I came in and I was like, hey, Joanne, look what I learned. I learned how to do this technique. She goes, oh yeah, I know how to do that. And then she was just like, she was just doing it so fast. And then after that, I was helping, you know, showing guys in the line what I learned at school. And I kept sharing all the stuff I was learning at school with a lot of the guys in the line who weren't going to culinary school. So they, some of them were into it. Some of them were pissed off. Most of them were like, whatever. Um, until, of course, we all became like a crew. And then they were like, hey, Lisa, what did you do? Did you learn this? And I'll be like, no, dude, you can't do that. Or you know, showing them how to make a gas streak and, you know, it was just, it was really fun or at least giving them some of the names of some of the things that maybe they already knew how to do, but they didn't, maybe to be quite honest, they would know the names, but sometimes they didn't know the spelling and you can understand that because if you've been making gas streaks in restaurants and someone's like, oh, gas streak and you speak a different language, you're going to spell it differently. So like it was little things like that. Anyhow, Joanne, um, <laughs> I was really amped about that. But then I got to start butchering some fish, which was really fun. And so that actually gave me a really great technique, all because of the damn concasse. So back to the concasse story. Once you've got these little tiny squares of unnecessary, very unnecessary tomatoes, um, like a deep 600 pan, a little quarter pan, and um, people keep it on ice or in the fridge below wraps of plastic for service. And then you pull it out in service and it's one of your garnishes. Now, chopped parsley is another thing like that where you just have flat leaf parsley, which you wash, dry perfectly, chop perfectly, and you sprinkle that on everything too. So everything has a little red and green on it. Um, Jeremiah Tower, you know, I had been working there for like, I don't know, a while. I would say maybe like a month or so. And um, we've had a few star chefs come in who were kind of, you know, they were the consultants. So there was like a whole crew of people who would be coming in all the time. And it was really fun because they work with you on the line and teach you things. And one day Jeremiah Tower comes in and he's just like, what is this? tomato concasse on every station and I was listening I was like whoa this is crazy he's like what is this and I'm forgetting the name of the chef she's a really famous Jewish chef one of the few well-known chefs for Jewish cuisine oh, damn it uh, Barbara no not Barbara yeah Barbara um from San Francisco Ugh, got it I'm unprepared anyhow they're both there together talking about it and he up to me later and he's like I'm gonna work in line with you tonight I was like oh I'm so excited so nice to meet you and he's like and this he's like this this is not gonna we're not using any fucking concasse that's what he said to me get rid of this he's like staff it I don't care what you do just staff it we're not using this tonight we're getting rid of this fucking concasse he's like 
don't ever do this. So then, you know, he was cussing and then, you know, we got slammed and, you know, he was mostly just watching and then I would be cooking a lot of, I was doing like a squab dish and also I was running the pizza oven at the same time and I was the lead on the line. And so all the first courses that went out were like, you know, me and we were slammed and we had like hundreds of orders and, you know, he would run out and get me plates and he would, you know, I'd watch him plate things with me and I was slicing the squab dish and we were making these, um, these corn blinis, which the pastry chef at the time was going off that these were not actual true corn, corn blinis and we should change that on the menu. We should call it corn pancake because it's not accurate. She can't deal with inaccuracies in language and it's not truth in menu and all this sort of stuff. And so I was like, I don't know who I'm voting for. I don't really care. I'm just glad I get to be here and be a part of all this. And I was the one making batter. So um, I got to take that back to culinary school and be like, hey, chef, I have a question in class. And everybody was like, hey, so what did you do? I mean, it's hilarious to think about because this was like so important to us. Um, you know, did, did they actually, you know, because if the Bellini actually is yeasted, I'm like, yeah, you know, buckwheat and this is corn and there's no yeast. It's just like a, it's actually a really lovely batter, um, which is a super similar batter that I actually learned from Donia Bijan too, except she adds cornmeal to hers, which is really nice. Um, I'll share that another time. So I'm on the line with him and making the corn cakes and we're just doing these platings fresh and you know I also was in charge of smoking the monkfish and the trout and all these things and it was really fun I had such a great time that was like the first time I worked with him and <laughs> there was no clock to say and I just I could still see his hands his beautiful hands and him just going oh fuck off this and this and this and then you know I love to swear too and I was like oh what the f I'm like fucking hell there's more tickets I'm like oh my god and he's like oh he's like aren't he's like aren't you peachy keen is what he said to me and I said why and he said well because you he's like I, I heard what you were saying I said oh I'm so sorry and I said it's my only vice you know I don't you know I don't do anything else like I'm a pretty all-around stable person like I don't you know I'm not an alcoholic I'm not a drug addict I start with this like whole thing that I love to say this is something I've been saying forever you know, but I like, you know, I like a four-letter word, whatever. He's like, yeah, he goes, well, you're peachy keen. Like, it gave me a little, like, shoulder rub, and, like, it was great. And he was very rosy-cheeked and drinking champagne and gave me a glass of champagne at the end of the night. And then I tried something really interesting. I'm not sure if this was the same night of the Fakankakase night, but there was another night where got some abalone in and some lobster and I'm not sure if he was the person who brought it to us you know or maybe it was this other chef who was really fantastic Daniel and Sarah it could have been him um you know, this New York chef who was absolutely just also the most beautiful person you've ever seen this man was absolutely gorgeous um and talented as hell came from David Boulay's world and he went back to run his world and then he had a restaurant out in Hoboken, Hoboken, New Jersey or whatever. Anyhow, um, just a fantastic chef, all around fantastic chef. And I think maybe he knew someone who caught it or I don't know what was going on, but 
Jeremiah Tower pulls out this Tunisian vanilla bean that he had brought from Tahiti. And I remember I got to smell it and he had a bunch of them, like a bag of them. And I, it was very plump and tall. And, you know, and I remember watching him like, you know, push, like he did something, he, did. he cut the end off and then he like took the back of the, like, I think it was my paring knife because I was so excited and he like pushed it out. You know, he just pushed out all this like, this little beautiful, tiny bean, vanilla beans. It was just so, oh my God, I can smell it. I can still smell it. And then he made like a beurre blanc sauce. And then he put that over the lobster. And then he served it to me, this like little dish. And then they also cooked the abalone and just like with lemon, I think like butter and olive oil. And maybe, Fuck off. <laughs> 